The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So, uh, some of you might know, once a quarter we have a podlock at the center. We call it the quarterly gathering, community gathering. And at that time in the morning, we do the traditional three refuges and five precepts. It's a recitation that's been done for a long time in the Buddhist tradition, a way of acknowledging what is our true refuge. And traditionally, that's recited as, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And it has a superficial meaning. You know, we have this person who taught long ago, the Buddha is the word we use, you know, the title of that person, the one who's awake. And the Dharma are the teachings of the Buddha, and the Sangha are those people who have practiced and realized something from those teachings. But of course, that's just a very superficial meaning. Much more, I mean, somebody who lived 2,500 years ago can't be much of a refuge, if any, for us. What's a refuge is whatever that person realized, that potential to realize that same thing here in this mind, in this heart, that's a refuge. So we take refuge, in a sense, in that realization or that insight that the Buddha had. And we, we, we take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings, but really the teachings are pointing to the present moment, a way of opening to the present moment. So this is another meaning for the word Dharma. Dharma is the way things are, the way it is now. So we take refuge in that because... In a sense, the way it is now is our one and only teacher in this moment. And the question is, you know, are we willing to learn from our teacher? Mostly we're in denial of the present moment. We're distracted, caught up in different things. And we're not really meeting our teacher the way it is right now. So the Buddha, the one who knows that awakened quality of the mind, right, that knows things as they are, what does that Buddha know? The Buddha knows Dharma, the way that it is right now. And then out of that beautiful, awakened mind, knowing the way that it is, meeting, opening to life as it actually is, comes skillful action. That's what we mean by Sangha. It's the third refuge. Sometimes we talk about this as community. But really it's the enlightened qualities of a human being when they're fully present with wisdom, then their response in that moment will be sangha, will be appropriate. Some of you know there's a famous line from one of the Zen patriarchs from China way back when, when asked, you know, what is the true meaning of this path, the practice, this path of awakening? This person responded, an appropriate response. And it's such a beautiful summary because that's what's left when the practice is developed, is the heart or the mind or this life responds appropriately to what's happening. That's how we know, you know, in that moment we're relatively awake, the heart's responding appropriately in that moment. When we're responding defensively, greedily, with fear, with anger, disconnected, well then we just realize that's in a sense our teacher, like to see the ineffectiveness of that response and to understand out of what understanding did that ineffective response come. 
you know, came out of some self-centered drama, some self-centered perspective. And we act out of that, and it doesn't really work very well for ourselves or for others. So I want to talk a little bit about this refuge and community, or refuge and sangha, the sangha as a refuge. There's a famous passage from the time of the Buddha where his attendant said to the Buddha, Ananda, his cousin, who was also a monk and his attendant for many years near the end of the Buddha's life, for like the last 20 years of his life, Ananda took care of the Buddha. And uh, at one point, Ananda says to the Buddha, you know, I think spiritual friendship is half of the whole of the holy life. You know, half of spiritual life is having good spiritual friends. And probably Ananda was thinking the Buddha would sort of agree with me. But the Buddha, Ananda in a lot of the stories is sort of the fall guy. You know, he tries hard, but he doesn't quite do it right. So the Buddha corrects him. It's not true, Ananda. Spiritual friendship is all of the holy life, all of spiritual practice. And there are many times, many, many times where and the Buddha, when the Buddha is giving some list or talking about supports for awakening, supports for freedom, supports for living a skillful life, he talks about the importance of, of wholesome friendships. And he also talks about the ill effects of hanging around people who aren't very mindful or who aren't very interested in wisdom and compassion. Not that we can avoid those people, but just to be honest with yourself, you know, this part of this deeper teaching of anatta, this not-self, or there's no uh, independent entity, you know, it's just nature happening here, is that who we are isn't this permanent entity, Mark, you know, that somehow stands apart from everything else. And there's Peter over there, and Sharon over there, and we're all these independent entities. It's not true. Who we are comes out of the environment we're in. And we're more around certain friends. That's who we are. We're the person who acts like that when they're around those kind of people. And when we're around other kinds of people, we act like that person who acts when he or she's around those kind of people. So it really makes a difference what we're around, who we're around. And this helps us understand, uh, like, spiritual community. Because... I was, uh, there's a story that gets told a lot in spiritual circles about geese, you know, and how they fly in formation. It's as an example, like a metaphor for spiritual community, and how it said, I checked on this, and it's not actually true, you know, that they rotate, you know, one person gets tired, and then somebody else takes the person's place, the, the next goose takes the place, and the rest are honking, encouraging the leader to kind of go forward, and... <laughs> When one gets sick, a couple go down to the pond or the lake with them so that when that person's ready, that goose is ready to fly again, that they've got a couple people to make a V, a couple geese rather to make a V. And uh, so I was going to say something like that in this talk, but I thought I'd check. So I, the great thing about Google, you know, so I, put, I put geese formation, you know, I forget some other words. And of course there are several things on the internet debunking <laughs> this, which is always, there's so many of these kind of myths, you know, that sort of make great stories that are. Huh? I, I probably would have gotten it. That's right. But 
the, the deeper teaching, I think, here is that it's not that, you know, community is the way, it's perfect. It's just that life is difficult without community, and life is difficult with community. But there's an advantage if we say we can use community, we can use our relationships, our interactions, to illuminate our life. And that's what the whole path is about. It's about waking up. And we all know this. Like You can be in a relationship with another person, and it can be deadening, and in a way it's driving you, driving all of us, to reactive patterns, basically being blind, because it's too painful to be awake. But you also can be, we also can be in relationships where it's hard not to be awake. The the relationship has a certain dynamic, a certain energy, that it enlivens us. We feel awakened, we feel present. And we don't always like that, because we see so much of our stuff when we're in that state. We'd rather be on automatic pilot, but for some reason, that community or that relationship doesn't really allow for that. I know a lot of you have probably read or looked at at least uh, Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. He wrote it a number of years ago. It's quite a good book. And uh, in that, there's a, some section, I'll have to paraphrase, but he, he says in terms of intimate relationships, maybe romantic relationships or partnerships, that if one person deepens their practice, develops and deepens their practice quite a bit, and the other person isn't, it's like either that other person will start practicing one way or another, formally or not, or they'll have a very hard time staying together. And it's true. If we're with somebody who's really present, really mindful, really real in their life, not sort of living with ideas and protecting themselves with views that, you know, you know how we do that. We, we have these ideas of life and then we become dependent on them and we make, we sort of force our experience to fit our ideas. So when we're with the opposite kind of person who doesn't have fixed ideas, who's present and real and coming from that place, it's really hard to be caught in our delusions because that other person sees them and in some way we sense that they we sense the false falseness of our projections whatever they might be our ideas of ourselves, our ideas of others any sort of fixed notions because that person at least now in this moment isn't living with fixed notions and there's more fluid more open more real way of being shows up our falseness, the falseness of our ideas, the fixedness of our ideas. So either we let them fall apart and inevitably start practicing, meaning we're more real, we're more aware of how it is, or we run away because we're more dependent, more attached to our fixed notions than we are to this relationship. So as I was thinking about this topic, about community as a refuge, or really understanding how our relationships, our interactions, can be uh, a very powerful ground for waking up and being free. Instead of what we often think of is like 
all of these complicated relationships are a problem. You know, if only I didn't have kids, if only I didn't have to have a partner, if only I didn't have any sexual energy, you know, if only I didn't have to have a job. How many times have we thought that? You know, what a burden that is to the awakening process. If only I didn't have to go to work and I could practice all day. There's a great story. Some of you know Gurdjieff, a well-known teacher of the last century and he had a place, I think in Paris uh, um, or in France for sure, maybe in the countryside, and uh, kind of a spiritual center. And he had a number of people, community members, living there, working together in spiritual community. And there was one particularly difficult person in the community. And everyone else knew this person was difficult, had a hard time with this person. And then made it really hard for that person to stay because he was so difficult to be around. So eventually that difficult person left. And Gurdjieff, the spiritual leader, tracked down that person and offered him money to come back to the center. And this idea like, you know, grit. They throw grit in the flour mill, those old, you've probably seen pictures of those old uh, stones that turn and they grind the wheat and turn it into flour, and they put grit in there to help the grinding process. And this is what we find in relationships, or just generally in the world. It's why we need the world. And so, like so many things in life, there's a, a um, an enlivening dynamic. Going on retreat, sitting in a quiet space in our house, doing our formal meditation practice, where in a way we're retreating from community, and then when the knees get too sore, or when the time to go to work, that eventually we stop that retreat, that time of sitting meditation, and we go back to our families, we go back into the world, to our jobs, to our friends, our lovers. And that's, you know, we often say, when you think your practice is going well, then go see... And you can just fill in the blank, you know, go see your mom, or go see your dad, or you know, go see your kids. Because it's relatively easy when we're all alone, and there are no mosquitoes, and it's a beautiful fall day, and the temperature's just right. You know, then it's relatively easy to have a spacious mind and a generous heart. But it's very different when somebody comes by on a motorcycle, or or whatever, you know, that's not in our vision, isn't what we expect, not what we like. And we can get irritated very fast. And in fact, one of the telltale signs that your freedom of mind, your spaciousness of mind, your goodness of heart is very fragile is when you feel like uh, it's, you know, you have to protect it. And you see this, like I've been on a number of long retreats, meditation retreats, and one of the things you see happening to myself and to others is how neurotic the mind gets, protective. It's like, you know, like you hear about baseball players, like if they have a good day at the plate, then they do exactly the same thing at the next game and the next game. They can't deviate from that. It's like meditators do that too. I've got to sit close, or I've got to sit in the back, or I've got to have my shawl, or I have to be by the window. I have to be away from the window. I have to have this kind of room. I need to be the first person through the dinner line. I need to be the last person through the dinner line. I need these kind, this kind of food. And we, we create this whole 
tight place. And the, the nice thing about community that doesn't allow for that. It's like everything's unpredictable. We don't know. Like we think we know who we're married to or who our partner is, but then we go home and it's like we can force that person to fit our idea, but the fact is they're constantly changing. They're all over the place. In the same way we're all over the place. Nothing stays the same. So it's hard to kind of nail it down or predict how it's going to be then. The only way to be in community or in relationship is to be really alive and fresh and new. Because it's never been like this before. And that's even true even in our own mind. You know, it's never been like this. Doesn't it feel so oppressively the same? You know, our thoughts, the way our, our habits work. But it's just because we're so superficial. We ha- we're not actually that interested. We're in a way, stunned by our idea that it's just the same, or I already know this. And we're not really willing to be, to show up, you know, to be real with life, with ourselves, with our relationships. So it occurred to me there are sort of two general ways, you know, in speaking in a wholesome sense, two general ways to relate to community. In those moments when we do feel relatively free or spacious, generous of heart, kind, then the reason and the way that we relate to community is a, it's like a ground for the expression of compassion. We actually need the world, we need community, we need other people. It's like we're, when we're heart is balanced and awake and clear, it's like tripping over joy. There's an upwelling of goodness. It needs to respond, it needs to do something. And, you know, we all know the world can use a helping hand. It can use that generous spirit, that wise spirit, that patient spirit, that forgiving spirit, that creative spirit. And that's, so when we are are in that place, maybe that's not that often, maybe it's all the time, you know, maybe we have some fully awakened people who are always in that place. But even then we need the community. We need a place to give freely, to express the love. And then when we're not in a good place, when we're feeling despair or hopeless, when we're caught, angry, fearful, needy, then, if we have enough wherewithal, we realize we also need the community. But now we need the community from this place of humility, knowing that we're suffering, knowing that this heart, this mind, is caught. So it's gotten itself in a tight place, don't know which way to turn. Every place we turn hurts. You know, we just get tighter. Then we enter the community with us, like, is there anybody who knows the way? You know, the way to deal with a tight heart, the way to deal with, you know, the pain, the suffering that I'm in right now. So we look to the community, to our friends, and then out broader, we look out into the community. Is there anybody who knows the way? That's how we end up at a place like Common Ground. Somewhere along the line, in some fashion, we said, is there anybody who knows the way? And then maybe a friend of ours said, well, you know, there's this place, Common Ground, they teach, follow the teachings of the Buddha, and they learn, practice being mindful all day long. 
and uh, you might find it helpful. You know, we we don't know, but it, we're we're interested in a way. And so part of this turning to the community because we're looking for somebody who knows the way is that we have to be humble and we have to be willing to check things out to see if they actually know the way. We can't assume because they have a big temple somewhere or, you know, the person has a lot of charisma or has a lot of followers or anything like that, that they know the way. The only way we know that they know the way is we hear what they have to say or read what they have to say and we try it out. And we realize, oh, directly, experientially, we realize, oh, my heart's relieved. I'm doing what they said and my heart feels relieved. It feels less tight. The mind, the heart is less bound up. Life seems to be working better. And even then, we don't like, totally believe. We, we just keep checking it out until our own experience tells us what's right or wrong. And this, I find, a useful way. So either we need community in moments where there is a lot of clarity, we need a community as a way to express that clarity or that generosity or that love, and see the limitations of it, right? Because, you know, maybe it's fine for a while, but then something arises. It's like times when we've been generous and it's just felt great, and then somebody shows up, and we don't really want to be generous to that person. Have you noticed that sort of thing? It's like, some people it's so easy to be generous to. <laughs> and other people it's like, no, you don't deserve my generosity. Or... You know, even like time. We're happy to give our time to some people who seem to be needing a friend or needing somebody there, but not to other people. So that's why, you know, when we're in a good place, it really either allows for that free giving or shows the limitations of it. And then when we're in a difficult place, it's a way to learn. It's like, this is the great thing. We are not alone as ignorant confused, suffering human beings, stressed out human beings. There's a long history of these kind of human beings, and fortunately, there's a long history of women and men finding the way. Finding a way, given their busy lives, given the messiness of the world, finding a way to be free in that messiness. I like to, I think it's useful actually to visualize it as a very wide and deep stream or river of wisdom or goodness or whatever you want to call it, that is available. You know, both in terms of, you know, actual teachings that are written down or living beings who can, you know, who have some wisdom and can share it. But even even in a more uh, subtle way that we can tap into, like archetypal, like it's there and that somehow we're all in that soup. You know, we're, we're in this soup where there's a lot of ignorance, it's so easy for us to sort of sympathetically vibrate with all the other ignorance and confusion and fear and anger and greed that's around us. We all know that that's true. But the opposite is true, too. We can sympathetically vibrate with all the goodness, all the wisdom, all the compassion that's also here. It's not just all negative stuff. And it, it's really a matter, like a radio, it's like, what are we attuning to? What are we interested in? Are we interested in the greed and aversion and the distraction? 
Or are we interested in the goodness? Tuning into that. And that's really what we mean by Sangha. You know, these enlightened qualities in our heart, in others' hearts, it's just part of this archetypal river of goodness that is the result of human beings in their messy lives realizing a way to be free through non-attachment, non-clinging. Sort of through dropping the fixation on separation and living out of a place, an understanding or an experience of non-separation. And that, uh, that is something we can uh, access, all of us. And there's sort of an evolution. And I think it's nice to recognize this. And it's not like we go through that evolution once. It's more, I think it's much more circular. So, for example, we've all had relationships with individuals and with the communities that we're part of that's very businesslike. And there's this sort of, usually not so upfront negotiation going on. What can I get away with, with this relationship? How much can I take before I sort of lose my access or lose what I want? And it can be very manipulative. And it's often has to do with power. You know, how much power, because if I have a lot of power, then I can take a lot without having to give a lot. If I don't have much power, i got to give a lot in order to get a little. And so many of our relationships are, this is kind of how they're characterized. And obviously there'd be a lot of fear, resentment, and uh, disconnection in these kind of relationships. Because if we're the one in power, if we're the privileged one, then we don't really want to know that we're taking advantage of others. We have to dismiss them in some way in order to feel comfortable with being in that privileged or, uh, you know, exploiting somebody else. So that's just one thing to notice. And like I said, it's not like we somehow transcend that way of relating to other people and we never go back there. No. When certain conditions arise, we get drawn back in to that, you know, relatively unskillful way of relating. Even our... Most intimate relationships, like my relationship with my partner, when, you know, sometimes it's on that business-like level. You know, I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. You haven't really been there for me, so I'll be damned if I'm going to be there for you. Until you realize you haven't really been there for me, and then after you, then I'll... And it's just, I catch myself with this sort of attitude. And it's, it's astounding, but it's real. I mean... We fall into that. I'm assuming I'm not the only one. (laughs) Sounds like I'm not. That's good. Another relatively unskillful pattern we get into with uh, communities is looking for salvation. And again, this can be true with an individual or group where we're really hurting and maybe we've been hurting so long and so much that we start to feel despair and helpless. And as if there's no worth, no capacity here. And so out of that place of helplessness and low self-esteem, then we imagine our salvation is out there with an individual, a group. You know, and this is, there's a lot of terrible things that come out of this because um, people who um, go to these places 
hoping for salvation, they're desperate. And so they can be manipulated by the people in charge. And uh, they'll do anything to feel like they belong. We do everything we can to feel like we belong. So this is another thing just to notice in relationships, expecting somebody to save us. And of course it can never happen. I mean, there's a great line from the one of the suttas that came later, not from the teachings of the historic Buddha, but in the later traditions of Buddhism. This uh, line from one of the scriptures. The Buddhas cannot wash away our sins with water. They cannot remove our suffering with their hands. They cannot transfer their insights to us. All they can do is teach the Dharma. I am my own protector. Now, initially, when we get into these relationships, hoping to be, you know, saved, we don't realize I'm my own protector. We think somebody else is going to protect us. We want our mom or our dad to protect us. The proverbial grandfather or grandmother in the sky to protect us. And anybody, you know, there's a line in one of the Zen teachings about the finger pointing to the moon or the finger pointing to freedom. But we get enchanted with the finger. You know, we don't actually look or follow the instruction. We get fascinated and and entranced by the instruction itself, not following it, not actually practicing. It's like people drawn to really beautiful communities because it makes them feel better to be, you know, around people like that. Those are the people I want to be around. They seem to have it together. And, you know, we could all whip this up and then Probably in some ways we do, even at Common Ground, you know, sort of whip up that we've got the way. This is a special way. Now, I know we don't dress special here, you know, and we're kind of done an ordinary corner in Minneapolis, but we're just stealth. (laughs) We are actually the cool people here. And that's how we can feel. So it doesn't, you know, it's not just a mega church over here or this kind of place over there, you know, who has the highest spiral or spiral rather in the sky and they're the special people we all are kind of looking for that being special and uh, so we want to be on the lookout for that in terms of all of our relationships because that would not be community as a refuge that's community as a trap because inevitably we feel betrayed because you know we see it you know Eventually, we have to see the falseness. And we say, oh, that's, that person was just an ordinary human being, or maybe even less than ordinary, worse than ordinary human being. And then another way, uh, not moving into more skillful ways of relating, is that birth where maybe after having gotten burned a number of times, then something is born, like, I have to be responsible for my own protection. I can't actually rely on my partner, my parents, my community. As much as I love them, as much as I feel loved by them at times, I realize that ultimately my happiness or unhappiness is a function of how this mind is operating in this life, in this world that I'm living. Not what somebody gives me. And this 
this forever, this insight, the development, slow development of this insight begins to forever change our relationship to community and relationships. To whatever degree right now, you know, not that it's a constant thing, but to whatever degree now, we have some intuitive sense that my happiness, my freedom, isn't dependent on anybody else. It, it's only dependent on like the mind's understanding, this heart's understanding. And when the understanding is deep and clear, then there's the potential of a lot of freedom. And when my understanding is very superficial or very disconnected from the way things are, then my suffering, there's really no balance to my suffering. So in a way, I think it's fair to say that as a human being, speaking for myself as a human being, there is literally no bounds to how much suffering this heart is capable of and no bounds to how much freedom this heart is capable of. And that whole range is right here. And in a sense, and this is ironic saying it this way from a Buddhist point of view, I'm responsible. This life, this awakening process is responsible for whether in a moment I'm really suffering or I'm not suffering. And this is a very provocative thing because we tend to blame a lot of outside conditions for our suffering. Like being oppressed or being sick or being in a war zone or being hungry or having a bad knee or being where there are a lot of mosquitoes even. I mean, even relatively trivial things, we think, well, I can't be happy now because of this. So that's why this is not a small turning in the mind when we begin to suspect that actually it doesn't matter whether there are mosquitoes or not. I mean, clearly we'd rather not have noxious insects. We'd rather not live in a society where we're being oppressed. We'd rather not live in a war zone. But are we going to assume because we're in a war zone that it's not possible to be free? It's not possible to be a wise and loving, free human being. Because that idea that it's not possible is quite limiting. So this is a real birth. And you can see, I'm sure you get a sense, how this changes our relationship to community. Because now we're interested in role models. We're like... We want community because we're interested in other people who are, in a sense, taking ownership of their life or owning responsibility for their happiness. And they're modeling how to be happy, having owned the responsibility, learning through trial and error how to be free, how to be happy, how to be loving and kind and wise. We can learn from them. So it's not so much they're going to give me something, but we can learn from their example. We can be inspired by their example. And, by the way, we can learn from all the bad examples out there, too. Well, that's not the way. Well, that's not the way. You know, we see somebody operating out of a lot of fear and getting a lot of suffering. And we go, fear doesn't help. We see somebody, you know, really caught up in greed. Getting, getting, getting. Thinking that somehow if I just get enough money in the bank, I'll be forever happy. And we just see their stress we see how, when the money comes and goes, how stressful that is. You see, that's not the way either. There are a lot of rich people who aren't happy, so that can't be the way to happiness. That doesn't mean money's bad. I don't think money's bad. 
But it obviously, I mean, it doesn't take that much reflection to realize it isn't a cause for happiness in and of itself. It's just money, you know. So we learn, this is why we need to be in community, because everybody's doing what we're doing. They're trying to be happy. And some people are relatively successful, and some people are relatively unsuccessful. And we can learn from each other so much if we just look at each other and ourselves with the right lens, which is, like this is what the Buddha said, it's all about suffering and not suffering. There is nothing else that's relevant in life. And so, and he, he would go on and say, I only teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering, stress and the end of stress, because that's what's relevant. So when we're living in community, that's what we're aware of, our own suffering and absence of suffering, and everybody else's suffering and absence of suffering, as best we can discern it. And understanding it in terms of like this interdependent unfolding, like how is it that that person has come to this experience of suffering? Or how is it that that person has come to this experience of relative freedom and ease in their life? What is it that their mind is doing? How is their mind relating? How are they seeing things? How are they understanding things that supports this freedom in their life or this suffering in their life, depending on how it is for them? And so this naturally leads to something very related, which is this appreciation as community of community as a place for rubbing and scrubbing. You know, so, you know, we don't say this. We're generally very idealistic, like I'm going to get married or I'm going to have this partner. I'm going to move in with this person because I love her or I love him. But actually, more, more truthfully, we're, we're getting together because... The rubbing and scrubbing, this particular dynamic and the trust that we have, when we rub and scrub, we're going to learn from it. So we don't expect it to be easy, but we expect that we're going to learn something in being together. Like we respect, we expect because we respect each other, that we can take advantage of what's difficult, and we can be healed by what's pleasant and good in the relationship, because it's a mix. I mean, I feel like I have a really good relationship. I feel fortunate when and I have been together since 1991. But it's difficult. I mean, I find it a very difficult thing to be in a committed relationship. And I've learned a lot. So part of what makes the learning possible is the part of the relationship that's easy and pleasant. And kind of keeps us going. It's the same thing with any kind of community. You know, there's the part that's easy and then there's the part that's hard. And, you know, you can't pick and choose. I'll just take this part or take that part. We take the whole package. And because we're talking about human beings, it's always going to be messy. You know, there's no relationships that aren't messy in some way. Because nothing's predictable, as I mentioned before. And uh, unless the person's fully awake, we're constantly our fears bumping up or triggering their fear, and their fear is triggering our fear. And every single afflictive conditioned pattern is triggering other people's conditioned patterns. So it gets messy. But if we come at it with the right attitude that this is a place for learning, 
really good. This is a great line from Joko Back, one of the um, matriarchs of Western Buddhism. She's dead now. She died recently, a couple years ago, after many decades running the uh, Zen Center in San Diego. And uh, in one of her books, she said, as long as we are able to be annoyed, we can be sure someone will show up to annoy us. <laughs> and now that could be a problem that would drive us to the cave, you know, the proverbial meditation cave away from everybody. But maybe we could have a different attitude, especially when we understand that there's no escaping. Like even if we go to the cave, we still have a relationship with our own thoughts. And sometimes our friends and communities more healthy than our thoughts. <coughs> so if we know that we're always going to be in a relationship, then it's just a matter of saying, okay, so some things will make me feel safe and some things are going to annoy me. And maybe I can learn from both. And then the last uh, sort of aspect of community that we want to be aware of, and I mentioned this right at the beginning of the talk, is this place for free giving and free receiving. We talk about that a lot at the center because, you know, we base how we operate financially on this principle of free giving and free receiving. But it's, it's really a, a good description of the awakened state or the enlightened state. So when we're able to enter a community, a group of people into a relationship or an interaction and that interaction is um, expressed or described by this free giving and free receiving. So there's a giving and there's a receiving but there's no friction in that giving and receiving, like no trace left. Then that's what we're looking for. That's the, the aspiration we have is to be a human being with a body and a mind embedded in so many relationships but to be in those relationships in a way that feels free freely giving what we have to give in that particular moment freely receiving what's coming our way even if we don't like it we welcome it we don't welcome it because we like things we welcome it because it's this way now this is how it is now this is the life that's arising in this moment now. And it's beautiful to receive things that come our way. That doesn't mean we don't respond. But in this moment, it is this way. We did fall off the bike. The knee is scraped. This is how it is now. So we receive that pain. We receive the humiliation. We receive everything that comes with it. Because this is how it is now. Same with really beautiful moments where people really like us or are praising us, think we did a nice thing. We don't say, oh, no, 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 you know, and dismiss it. We receive it fully. We receive the gifts, the beautiful things that actually do come our way sometimes. We really let them in. Not afraid of them. Not sort of caught in some idea, no, not me, I'm not good enough. Because that's just as much of an attachment as thinking we're the best person in the whole universe. You know, it can be just as neurotic to somehow think we're no good or not deserving of somebody's love or somebody's generosity as thinking we are. We should, everybody should be, you know, in love with me or something like that. And this last area of free giving, free receiving, it's really what we mean by bodhicitta. This has got 
became a very important concept in later schools of Buddhism. Compassion, uh, being expressed as this awakened heart that lives for the benefit of all beings, including ourselves. And that it's an expression of joy, not like some great cross we have to bear through life. I've, I've got to take care of all beings. I've got to care for all beings. I've got to really be there. Can't wait till this is over. It's not that attitude at all. It's like a, a joy to be there, to respond, to take care of ourselves and other beings. So I'll leave it here. We have about ten minutes left. It would be nice to hear from people. I'm sure there are people in the group that have experiences in these different ways of relating to community, beautiful ways, not so beautiful ways, that would be nice for us to hear, learn from, or any questions you might have about the talk tonight. What have you learned about community, or what questions do you have? Yeah, Erica. Um, nice and loud. I, yeah, so I It's a really good question. And it really depends on your intention. Like sometimes, and it can be very subtle, our calm, our equanimity is actually a stance. And it's a very subtle way of saying, you're bad because you're hot, you're emotional, and I'm cool because I'm not. But it, we, we may not seem that way. Maybe in hindsight we can notice, like even now, even though this is probably several days ago, even now, as you, in a quiet time, as you reflect in hindsight that interaction, on that interaction, you might be able to get a sense what were the qualities of your intentions. Like, where did that equanimity or that calm or that relatively quiet way of being, where did that come from? What attitude or what intention? So let's say it came from a really pure place, like, a pure place in that situation, because if somebody's angry, that means they're suffering. Because <clears throat> anger hurts. And so, now I know this isn't easy, but if somebody's really angry and we're in a good place, 
that means we're aware they're really hurting and we care about it. And, and we're not afraid to tune in to how difficult it is to be angry. And so our response, now who knows what we'll say, but our response basically has the flavor, I know you're hurting and I care about that. That's sort of where we're at. Now, the question is, how do you actually express that? Now, I'm not saying that being calm isn't an appropriate way. And in a sense, we're not responsible for what that person does with our response. Our response may be very clean, but it may really drive the other person crazy. But we can't predict necessarily how the person's going to respond, and we're definitely not responsible for how the person responds. Response. We're just responsible for, as best we can, and it's not easy, understanding the intentions, the purity of the intentions. Are we really there because we care, or is there some subtle gotcha going on in our mind? And like I said, I have not seen the end to those gotchas in my own mind. They can be so subtle. You know, we can use things that seem right on the surface, but they're really gotchas in some way. Like we're trying to prove a point, trying to make a stand. We're in this hierarchical world. I'm good, you're bad in some way. So I'd really look and keep looking at that. In that. Because even if you're 80% coming from a good place, there could be 20% that's a little off that still needs to be seen in that. Yeah. But even if we're 100% on, like really pure intentions, really good intentions, it still might trigger the other person. Because we have no idea all the conditioning of that particular mind and what might trigger things. You know, we just don't know. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Erica. Yeah, I don't know your name. Alice? Alice? Alice. Um, I've heard that I realize how I think other people are feeling when I'll often say something that I think is really important. Like, for example, Yeah. Well, it's very easy because things clearly are different. Some people have, like just in terms of external circumstances, clearly there's quite a range in terms of the health and the sort of wealth and power among different people. I mean, it's just night and day. It seems like it's very diverse, the pleasantness of people's conditions. And then internally, too, like some people have a lot of psychological patterns that are very destructive and counterproductive and other people have, you know, relatively wholesome, productive psychological patterns. 
And that's not so different. Like, that distribution doesn't seem so different than the distribution of wealth and beauty and power and health, those other ex- things we think of as more external things. And then there's a, another factor, which is somebody's wisdom, like how they relate to the power that they have or don't have, or how they relate to the health that they have or don't have, or how they relate to the personality that they have, or the bad personality that they have. So that's the one thing we can do about. The other two things we can't do anything about, like where we were born, the color of our skin, the amount of wealth or beauty or power that we have, you know, that's just how it is. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do things in the world to make it a better place. But right now, this is how it is. But the one thing we can do about it is we can learn how to relate to the conditions, both the conditions of our mind, our personality, and the external conditions of the world we live in. We can learn to relate to those conditions with more and more wisdom instead of ways that are counterproductive. And it can break our heart how, you know, fortunate and unfortunate different beings are because it's just the way that it is. And that breaking of our heart can really lead us to act in the world to take care of the people that need taken care of because it isn't equal. You know, the distribution of good personalities and, you know, external things like wealth and power is not equal. And it is not easy to do this practice when we have a lot of, you know, a lot of bad psychological patterns that we just got because maybe our parents were bad, badly off, or who knows where it came from, and bad external circumstances, it's really hard to develop wisdom in those conditions because our life is overwhelmed by our difficult personalities and our difficult external circumstances. Thanks, Alice, for bringing that up. I think we have to end. Well, maybe one more. Sure. Sorry. Don't forget. Um, so I was just, I was thinking about what you were talking about, that story in France about the people person in the center and having to learn from people and freely giving and receiving and things like that. But I have a tendency, with certain difficult people, I can sort of deal with them in my life, but if the person is especially challenging or a very negative person, I have a tendency to say, you're really a negative influence in my life and I'm just going to not deal with you anymore. Just Shut them out. And I was wondering if you had any advice for being more generous towards those people. Well, yeah, but we can be generous towards those people from a distance if we need to be. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a question of whether we can learn from them. And some people are so difficult, we, given our particular skill right now, we can't really learn anything. We can't help them and we can't help ourselves being around them. So we need to be distant from them. But we can keep an open mind that maybe someday there will be enough space in my heart and my mind, enough wisdom, enough compassion, enough fearlessness that I can actually be around a person like that and maybe learn something from being around them and maybe be a positive force in their life. I don't know. But I hold that out as an aspiration. But right now I know I'm not capable and I just get sucked in and I end up harming myself and probably not helping that person as well. Because clearly that's the case. And I think uh, the Buddha, you know, said many things in the same light. But then, of course, you know, with his freedom that came out of his own practice, he seemed to be pretty able to go anywhere and to deal with anybody. And that would be, 
that doesn't mean he was always successful. There were people he could he couldn't teach, you know, but at least he, he wasn't harmed by being around them. Uh, evidently, at least that's the story, Scott. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's just take a moment, let go of the words, take a breath together. Feeling at home in this community. having the sense of embracing all of our relationships and communities as messy as they may be, challenging as they may be, interested in being a good role model and recognizing good role models and learning and being a cause for real peace, real freedom from suffering in the world and here in our heart. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. I think Tim has a couple of announcements for the group. Thanks, Mark. Everybody for being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.